You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. 1. Because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. It's The Argument. I'm Jane Poston. Since the midterms, I've been thinking a lot about the future of the Democratic Party. Democrats just had the best midterms by a president's party in about 20 years. And the results have reopened the debate about who or what wins elections, and whether progressives or centrists are the future of the party. After all, the Progressive Caucus is now at over 100 members. But it was moderate Democrats who, by and large, prevented the party from losing the House by a large margin. So, depending on who you ask, both could be correct. And to top it all off, Speaker Nancy Pelosi is stepping down after nearly two decades as leader. It feels like we're at a defining moment for the Democratic Party. My guests today both follow the Democratic Party closely and have their own opinions on why Dems win or lose and what voters actually want. Bhaskar Sankara is the founding editor of Jacobin, a socialist magazine, and president of The Nation magazine. And of course, Michelle Cottle is a member of the Times editorial board focusing on politics. Basker, Michelle, good to see you. Hey, Jane. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And since we are discussing the Democrats, can I get you to just self-identify? Do you think of yourself as being a Democrat or member of the Democratic Party? How do you feel about the Democratic Party? I think the Democratic Party is the only way that we have right now to push progressive policies. But I consider myself a Democratic Socialist who happens to have been registered as a Democrat since age 18 and happens to be very active in Democratic Party politics and primaries and whatever else. But I think like a lot of Democrats across the political spectrum, and not really thrilled to call myself a Democrat sometimes. And Michelle? But Jane, I register as an independent so that I can complain about both parties at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Great. Bosco, you mentioned that you're sometimes you're not very happy to be a Democrat. But to me... For the first time, it feels like in like 15 years, it feels like the Democrats are kind of in array. They're getting stuff done. And yet the narrative around the midterms from like the week before was kind of along the lines of we are going to lose. And here's why we're going to lose. And it's because we were not progressive enough. It's because we did not do these things. And then that didn't happen. So, Bosker, would you agree that the Democrats are in array? No, I would not agree. <laughs> okay. um, and obviously, that's that's some ingrained pessimism that I think you hear from many people in the Democratic Party. But I think that, for one, holding on to the Senate is a great thing. I think the prospects for a Republican presidency in 2024 and a Republican Senate and House would have been very bleak for those of us who are uh, not just Democratic socialists, but progressives of any, of any stripe. But the Democrats lost the House in part because of very poor races that were run in deep blue states like California and New York. They didn't galvanize voters enough 
on economic issues. They didn't push a jobs first agenda like they did in certain other areas like Pennsylvania and Ohio. It's no surprise that Democrats overperformed, quote unquote, there, I guess, relative to what Biden did in 2020. Whereas in places where Democrats basically took for granted, uh, they they lost a lot of districts. My, my home district, which is not far from White Plains, New York, it's now has a Republican member of, of Congress. That's not something that we would have expected. I certainly didn't even expect it a, a couple of months ago. So I think the results were very uneven. I tend to take a much more optimistic view about what they did. Looking at the historical sweep, history was aligned against them and the fundamentals of the economy were aligned against them. The unpopular president was aligned against them. The fact that they did not get their butts handed to them was a massive achievement for the Democrats. Did they have help with the abortion issue popping up, which they had nothing to do with? This was all the Supreme Court. Yes, they did. They ran good races. I've looked into kind of what happened in Pennsylvania in particular, and you can go into the details of why they did certain things certain places. But at an era when these things tend to be nationalized and everything was aligned against them, I'm going to actually give them the big W on this one. They wildly overperformed. And we can, I mean, Democrats do tend to be like navel-gazing and hand-wringing and, oh my God, we should have done this. We're uncomfortable with this and we should have done that. They're uncomfortable with power. They're uncomfortable with winning. They're uncomfortable with being in charge. But all that said, you got to give them credit for this. I want to be clear and upfront here that I have a particular bias in this. And my bias is what I would call a normie bias. I firmly believe that candidates who perform normalcy or act as if they might be closely aligned with kind of the norm of whoever is voting will do well. Abigail Spanberger, for instance, held on in Virginia. Abigail Spanberger could not win in many other places, but she could win exactly where she is in Virginia, a place where there's probably like six orange theories in like every square three miles. It's a very normie place. (laughs) It seems to me, and again, this is, I I want you to push back if you think I'm wrong, because I probably am. It seems to me that Wherever your district is, you win based on what your constituents want, which is why an AOC can win in her district and Abigail Spanberger won in her district. What do you think that all of this tells us about Democratic voters? What do you think, looking at this as someone who is a progressive, someone who is a Democratic socialist? Well, I would separate two things. One would be rhetoric. And I guess when you mean performance of normalcy, a lot of this is just coding as being moderate to progressive on cultural and social issues and relatable in how you explain and talk about things. So if you go down the line on social issues, Biden is quite progressive, but he just has learned over the years how to communicate those imperatives in rhetoric that people find to be not off-putting and not a threat. So Republicans were seen as on the cultural and social front, Obviously, issues like abortion are also deeply economic. But on on all these issues, Republicans were seen as a party of extremism. Democrats were seen as the moderates hoping to give us some sort of status quo of reproductive rights and dignity and respect for all people. And that that was a good thing. The Republicans were then the cultural radicals. In a certain way, there are candidates like AOC, to some degree, Stacey Abrams and others that were coded for a variety of reasons, were coded as being partisans in kind of a culture war. Whereas I think other people with very divergent views 
from the Bernie Fetterman wing of the party to the Biden wing of the party were coded as being more relatable, more moderate on cultural issues. Now, the actual program on economic issues and and other demands didn't really make much of a difference. Fetterman was associated with socialized medicine. You know, he took a step back from his previous stances very openly in support of Medicare for all to a vaguer form of universal health care. But this is what the right attacked him as. You know, most people in Pennsylvania, if they knew about anything about his healthcare stance, they would say, okay, you know, he's on the left on on healthcare. I think there's two sorts of rhetorical approaches in the Democratic Party. One has proven more effective than the other. Michelle, do you think that moderate Democrats helped to carry this election? Of course, everybody. You know, when you're talking about a party that has so many different pieces to it, you have to have people who fit their district to some degree. But Bhaskar is is absolutely on this issue of who the messenger is and kind of how they relate and how they communicate. So, you know, Fetterman may have progressive policies on this issue or that issue, but Overall, Fetterman comes across culturally as giving the finger to elites. Connor Lamb was his primary opponent. And Connor Lamb was much more moderate, but came across as like your typical politician in many ways, even though he had like run in Western Pennsylvania and won in Trump districts and things like that. In some ways, it was just Fetterman conveys a sort of, you know, relatability and every guy shtick that really works in a lot of Pennsylvania. And he cut into Dr. Oz's margins in areas that normally go very red. So a lot of that is kind of a combination of policies and performance. And voters don't tend to get into a lot of policy details when they get out there and vote. I mean, yes, there are issues that they care about, but are they studying the candidate's policy positions? No, they're going based on what the candidate makes them feel like they're going to do about an issue. So it's even kind of hard to judge what they're looking at when they're talking about policies on some level. Now, that said, they were helped by the fact that Republicans ran a lot of abject looney tunes this time around. So we can't talk about the midterms without talking about House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She's not running for speaker again and will very likely be passing the gavel on to Representative Hakeem Jeffries. Michelle, what is the story of Nancy Pelosi? I think you've called her, and I quote, a total badass. But not everyone sees her that way. There's been so much criticism surrounding her in a way that kind of reminds me a little bit about how Republicans feel about Mitch McConnell. Like, he's gotten a lot done, but many Republicans think that he is the main problem. He is representative of, quote-unquote, conservative Inc. And I think that for a lot of Democrats, there's an idea that Nancy Pelosi is the thing that has stood in the way of further progress. Can you make the case for me about why Pelosi has been so important to Democrats? What stands out to you? Pelosi has managed to herd the cats over the years. I think the Trump era gave her a chance to rise to a new level and kind of go toe-to-toe with this completely ridiculous figure who clearly had no idea how to deal with her. He just, of all of his ability to cut people down to size with his sophomore humor and his just general thuggish stupidity, he never knew how to deal with her well and was clearly kind of in awe of her and respected her. Originally, there were all these 
people who were like, oh, she's too liberal, she's too easy to vilify, she's too easy to caricature, she's this what. And then it was, oh no, she's too establishment, she's too compromised, she's too old, she doesn't understand how things work. None of which she ever let stop her from doing what she needed to do. And did that mean that she got everything she wanted done? No, of course not. But historic healthcare reform and passing the infrastructure stuff, holding her troops in line through a lot of stuff with a very narrow margin in recent years, she was incredibly effective, which by definition meant people were going to hate her. Bhaskar, assuming Hakeem Jeffries becomes the next leader, how does that impact the party, do you think? Well, I think Jeffries is probably going to be worse for progressives than Nancy Pelosi was. If you look at Nancy Pelosi's record, there's kind of a contradiction, of course. She started off more associated with the liberal wing of the party, so then you kind of just call it the left of the party. She drifted towards the center on a lot of issues. A lot of her landmark achievements isn't just things like the ACH or the Inflation Reduction Act more recently, but also NAFTA, which obviously for a lot of the Democratic Party base was extremely polarizing, uh, kind of a symbol of what went wrong with the Democratic Party. Even during her tenure, even though she's not the individual responsible for this, but the kind of transformation of her her district itself and San Francisco itself from a place with a really vibrant home for working class people to now a play area of tech millionaires and everyone else just kind of scraping at the bottom. But Jeffries himself, I think, has not shown more of a commitment to the progressive cause. He clashed a lot with groups like the Democratic Socialists of America and the Bernie Kratt wing of the Democratic Party at large, whereas Pelosi was seen as kind of being above that fray. Pelosi very astutely knew that instead of fighting with people like AOC and the squad members when they came in, she had to try to incorporate them into the Democratic Party coalition. If anything, I think the fight over who's the speaker is somewhat overstated. If there's enough of a majority pushing for progressive policies, the speaker is going to go along with that. But I don't think the movement from Pelosi to Jeffries is any kind of win. Uh, If anything, I think we might end up wanting Pelosi back in, in some sort of surprising way. Michelle, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think Jeffries is going to be like a progressive champion. He's in no way given those signals. He's criticized the left wing of the party. He's much like Pelosi. He's fairly pragmatic. He's going to be minority leader. And so he's not going to get a chance to set any kind of agenda. When you're in the House and you're on the minority, it's not going to be what you want to do. Whatever policies they want aren't going to really matter for a while. I think the bigger issue here is that you're seeing a huge generational shift in leadership. I mean, we're going from three people in their 80s to, you know, 50s and 40s with the top three leaders in the Democratic Party, which is a big deal. I mean, whatever the politics or ideology involved, the generational shift that's coming for Congress is just going to, it's going to matter from that down to the first Gen Zer to get elected this time around. That automatically kind of starts you moving in a different direction. Bosker, Michelle mentioned something about the herding of cats within the House. And I spent much of my career thinking about conservatism and observing the Republican Party. And it seems to me the Republicans have been most politically successful when Mitch McConnell got the warring sides to quiet down. We see a lot of tension, and I think visible tension, between centrists and progressives in the Democratic Party. 
who are often, I think, more vocal than middle-of-the-road Democrats. The number of so-called blue-dog Democrats has decreased, and I think a lot of people, when they think of the Democratic Party, they think of the more progressive wing. I want to ask you, one, do you think that the strategy of getting louder voices to quiet down within the Democratic Party so they can push through headline legislation like they did in 2022 would be successful? And the second question is, would that be a good thing? Well, it's complicated because we have a lot of progressive Democrats now that have national platforms. People like AOC, Ilhan Omar, and others are really important figures in a cultural sense and really important media figures. They don't have an awful lot of power within the party itself as far as policymaking. So the way in which they can influence things is by talking to the media and being loud, right? I happen to agree with a lot of their agenda. So I would want them to be loud instead of just trying to maneuver behind the scenes to get things done. Obviously, there could be a combination of both. Now, the centrists have a point when they're critiquing certain forms of the rhetoric coming from the left of the party. The rhetoric around policing, the rhetoric just generally when it comes to expressing issues, worked really well in deep blue districts, but we still haven't found a squad member in a so-called purple district, right? So when the right of the party says, well, you need to moderate Mm -hmm. in order to win in these areas, you need to understand that we need to moderate, there's a certain point there at the level of, of rhetoric. But I do think that there's an overarching emphasis a plain-spoken language, a focus on jobs that could contain with it different policies. And I I don't think the party needs to move to the right on economics to win over moderate districts. If anything, in order to win over working-class voters of all races, particularly Hispanic voters, you just need a, a clear universal message. You need to focus on economics. I think economic populism combined with coding as being culturally moderate makes sense. And the great thing about that rhetoric is that you don't actually have to surrender any of your issues because voters are for gay marriage. They are for abortion rights. They are for the agenda of progressives, but not necessarily the way in which we express that agenda. Right. Michelle, when you look at the priorities of both progressives and moderates in Congress, where do you see overlap? And if you had to pick one thing, What do you think should be the policy priority for Democrats in 2023? So you see overlap on lots of things. People are worried about jobs. They're worried about inflation. Now, that said, there's not a lot really that can be done about inflation, but that doesn't mean that you can ignore it. So it is a question of knowing how to talk about things. When you are lecturing voters on why they shouldn't be worried about something, you are losing. I do think that there will be a lot of discussion about the economy, especially if the inflation issue is going to linger like we fear it will. They're going to have to find a way to talk about that, even though, especially again in the House, they're not going to have any control over a lot of these policies, even if they wanted to try stuff. Um, They can't ignore what people are frightened about. So it's obviously true that there are certain fundamentals about the economy. There are certain other issues that are beyond the realm of policy. But the thing, the reason why I focus so much on rhetoric is that rhetoric is a thing that we can control. And I think the last election really showed that 
by emphasizing a jobs-first agenda, by emphasizing a certain type of economic populism, you could run ahead of Biden in not only the electorate as a whole, but particularly among voters without college degrees and voters making under $50,000. So why should Fetterman's first bullet point in his policy agenda be make more shit in America at a time that we have 2% unemployment, less than that in some areas. Well, it just, it's good politics. And, and I think it's good to orient the party towards tangible, material things so people feel like you're, you're talking to them and with them and not, and not at them. I think some of the fantasies that even people like myself and, mm-hmm. and broadly the Bernie wing of the party had about there being a very large, untapped non-voters or low propensity voters that would just turn out if you gave them a really aggressive economic message turned out to be false. I still think we should try, but it's going to take many, many years of not just persuasion and language, but organizing on the ground and sinking deep roots. Hey, listener. I asked you a question two weeks ago about changing your mind about the political party you vote for. And a lot of you have switched around multiple times. I'd love to hear from more of you. What made you change your political party affiliation? Tell me in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. And you may hear yourself in a future episode about party hopping. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So let's move on to 2023 and Democrats planning for the future. One of the funny things about the Trump years is that it forced both parties to become increasingly big tents in ways that I don't think they fully intended. And now the Democratic Party is a big tent party with a lot of different types of voters to attend to. So, Michelle, what do you think is or what should be the slogan of Democrats in 2023? We're normal. I do think that what we saw this midterm in particular was people being repelled by the uber craziness of the Republican Party because they had everything going for them. They really should have had a red wave, but they just 
did not convey a sense of sanity. They were scary. There was talk of political violence. It does not help that Trump is out there and looming over the party still. And, you know, he started his run. He will become center stage if he has his way, and he usually gets his way when it comes to attention. I mean, that's the whole thing. He has command of the public discussion. So the Republican Party is going to, by definition, be fighting the image that they are the crazy extremist party. And so people are still in the mood for stability and security and the idea that somebody's going to look out for them in a way that's not going to light the entire country on fire. Bhaskar, what do you think should be the slogan of the Democratic Party in 2023? Well, jobs and dignity, because jobs, like I said, shows you're focused on bread and butter economic issues. But dignity really encapsulates a lot of things. It could be dignity on the job, dignity to have a union or whatever else. But it could also mean dignity in the struggles against oppression. If it's talked about like it's a, a college lecture on intersectionality or whatever else, it risks just alienating people. But if it's talked about just the level of everybody deserves to be treated with respect, we need a society that respects the contributions of people who work hard no matter what their background or identity, I think it's really a popular message. And I, I still believe that there's a majority out there of Americans who are not into the extreme theories of let's track demographics and prevent white Americans from becoming a minority in America and whatever else. I mean, this is really the fringe lunacy of the Republican Party, and we can't do a version of it with the rhetoric of intersectionality or white supremacy or whatever else in the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem we're dealing with is neither party has come up with a good way to talk to voters who feel alienated and disenfranchised. I mean, the Republican Party with Trump was going to do this. They were going to be the party of regular people, except then it turned into the party of white grievance QAnon and crazy talk. It became extremely online. It became the most extremely online people. Online. But Bosker, is there someone who you think of who is doing a good job of this right now? So I think Bernie Sanders in his 2016 run still has the model for people he put a whole host of, of issues on the agenda in, in the mainstream of, of politics. He was able to, I mean, Bernie, every single member of the squad, every future member of the squad should be forced to watch like the Bernie Sanders Fox News town halls. So I think there's bits of that sweeping universal rhetoric and people like AOC, but often it's drowned out by a type of rhetoric that came from the fact that the left has been trapped in academia mm -hmm. for the last quarter of a century. And because if you're running in a deep blue district, you often don't have to try hard to think about what are the rhetoric that will win over swing voters in other districts. Uh, Ro Khanna does a very good job in California. He's in a, a very comfortable blue district. But he talks a lot about jobs. When inflation came up, he talked a lot about policy solutions that would potentially help alleviate inflation. Jamal Bowman um, has at least tried to make inflation control a major part of his agenda. These candidates are for now in deep blue district. It doesn't mean their rhetoric should be as well. Do you think, though, that that I mean, you, you've brought up uh, John Fetterman a couple of times, but I do think that he had the unusual advantage of running against 
a person who people mostly knew for being on television and trying to sell raspberry ketones. <laughs> Have we seen examples of where this has worked in which staying focused on that type of economic populist argument has proven effective outside of blue districts? Yeah, I mean, I think to some degree, even though they weren't seen as as progressive, you could say uh, Whitmer and and Michigan, mm-hmm. uh, Ryan in Ohio, Mark Kelly in Arizona. There are plenty of examples, I think. Mm-hmm. And Fetterman, of course, had the advantage of a weak opponent. A lot of Democrats had that advantage because of what happened in the Republican primaries. He also had the disadvantage of a stroke and, right. and months and months of negative press coverage and and a very difficult uh, campaign. But I think he just seemed more relatable to people. And you know, voters tend to like to vote for, you know, Federman's own background is kind of eclectic, but like to vote for working class candidates or people with those roots. Yes. There's one of the things about Democrats that I've noted is the internalized belief that they're bad at everything. It reminds me of that Simpsons episode in which the Democrats are like, we hate ourselves, we can't govern. And the GOP is, we're just plain evil. And I think that it's that, that self-loathing that in my mind has put them in a weaker position to actually win elections. And I think that Democrats should rewire the image that they project of themselves, that many Democrats are pretty normal. So, Michelle, looking towards the future, what would you add to that strategy? What do you think that, you know, should there just be kind of an optimism now strategy? What should their public image start to look like? Jane, you're talking about it is a deep-seated pathology. Oh, it is. I think that's just who they are. You have to find good messengers. I mean, the candidates that Bhaskar is talking about who he thinks have done well with a populist economic message are nonetheless not seen as at the left side of the party. They present as moderates. You know, Fetterman has even shied away from calling himself a progressive because they are trying to not get caricatured as extreme or even democratic socialist, which is not a good label in certain corners of the electorate. If you utter the word socialist in certain Hispanic voting blocks, you will just freak people out all over the place. I mean, understandably, if you are coming from a country in which socialism has meant that people disappeared in your family, it's really hard to like pick a different, a kinder, different socialism. So a lot of A lot of this just depends on your messenger as Mm -hmm. much as your message. And that's hard. I mean, that's you have to match it to some degree if you're talking about Congress to the district or the state. I mean, Mark Kelly was considered a very kind of centrist sort of guy, which is good for Arizona. You have huge numbers of independent voters in Arizona. If you go too far to the left in Arizona, you're going to get shot out of the saddle. So It's one of those things. There's no easy solution here. But they do have this problem of when it comes time to go to the polls. They like to, you know, natter and nitpick and start complaining ahead of time. And if you talk to people who study this, they're like they trash their presidents from the minute they get elected because they want them to do more. Uh, So quick question, uh, not at all controversial. Buzzker, are you in for Biden 2024? Yes, I think Biden's the best bet for Democrats. He's an incumbent. He's done a pretty good job as president. I think his staff need to relax and let Biden be Biden. I want a Biden semi-coherent media run. I want to see him on the TV every day, just kind of word associating. I think people like him. I never bet against the incumbent president on these sorts of things. If he is healthy enough to do this and he thinks he's ready for another race, then the party needs to go with that. Michelle, 
How do you think the different factions of the party should think about the future? What do you want this party to look like, be for, and do? Are you talking about the Republican Party? The Democratic Party. I don't think we can tell the Republican Party what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, if you want to know what I want to do with the Republican Party, I want a large stake that you throw into a pit <laughs> and we just watch Trump and DeSantis down in Florida fight over that. Beyond that, I don't think we can do anything. Um, so the Democratic Party, I'm all for fighting it out. I think primaries, you know, people complain about, you know, the lack of choice or whatever. The Democratic Party had a big old primary Mm -hmm. in the last presidential election. And you wound up with a president who beat Donald Trump. And I'll take that any day. I'm all for fighting it out in the districts. You know, the progressives do their thing in the deep blue areas and the moderates do their thing in the purple areas. I'm all for this. And then you, at the end of the day, all come together and pull in a basic direction against the party that seems to still be flirting with anti-democratic values at this point. Bhaskar, I think that you talked about jobs and dignity, but is there anything else that you would add in terms of how different factions of the party should think about the future and what you want this party to look like? Well, I want the Democratic Party to be seen as a party of the working class. You know, you're obviously going to have lots of college-educated supporters. You're going to have lots of professional class and above supporters. You might even have a few tech billionaires running Ponzi schemes, you know, you might you might have a lot of other people supporting the Democratic Party, but but you need that that base. And the Democratic Party, I really worry in the last 20, 30 years, kind of running away from its bread and butter in a way that really is bad for US politics as a whole. If politics just becomes this comedy of manners where Democrats are telling the Republicans that they sh- they shouldn't do this because it's rude or, or bad. And Republicans are saying, oh, you're the bad ones trying to undermine <laughs> American culture or whatever else. Politics just loses its substance. Bhaskar, Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you. Jane, it is always a pleasure. Bhaskar Sankara is the founding editor of Jacobin and the president of The Nation magazine. Michelle Cottle is an editorial board member of The New York Times. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Vishaka Durba, and Derek Arthur. Edited by Alison Brujek and Amber Von Schassen. With original music by Isaac Jones and Pat McCusker. Mixing by Pat McCusker. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair and Michelle Harris. Audience strategy by Shannon Busta. With editorial support from Christina Samueluski.